Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 341. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 341 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy and Emmy Award-winning recording engineer and producer Cynthia Daniels, who has worked with an incredible array of talent in the world of music, Broadway, television, radio, and film. She speaks to us from her beautiful studio, Monk Music Studios, in East Hampton, New York, we have a great conversation about her journey and her perspective on the world of recording. And I'm very much looking forward to you hearing that. Cynthia Daniels, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's continue the discussion of my Dolby Atmos journey. Here is the update. If you have been listening to the past couple shows, you might be aware that I am taking the deep dive into the world of Dolby Atmos and creating a 714 room out of my uh, studio here at my house, which is not that big of a place, but after a bit of research, measurements, and video sent to the right people, I was assured that it was in fact just perfect for a 714 room. The journey continues. So here's where I'm at as of this episode. The last I spoke about this, I said I was going to be uh, selling off a bunch of gear that I just didn't use. That is still the case. So I am actively trying to liquidate or uh, cash in the chips, as, as you might say, of all the gear that I'm just not using, that I have stored at other people's studios. And that as much as it pains me to get rid of some of it, I feel that it's the best move and it's the smart move because as I mentioned before, with this project, I'm not gonna go into debt and I am not going to drain my bank account. So cashing in the chips, paying for everything and uh, still having money in the bank, which I think is the way to go. Before I do all that, I decided that there was some aesthetic changes I need, needed to make. And so I'm uh, doing some uh, changes to the walls, particularly the walls in front of me and behind me. So from an aesthetic perspective, we're gonna do the whole reclaim wood thing. You know, big planks of wood that used to be on fences. Some are a little brown, some are a little gray, some are a little red, some are a little white. So that's gonna look great. And my uh, my good friend, Dan Deshera, incredible musician and a great person is uh, tackling that job for me starting soon. Uh, so that required that I had to pull all of the uh, acoustic treatment off the wall. These uh, I've got these uh, reel traps that uh, were put in as part of one of the episodes in the past. Uh, we did a whole thing with reel traps and they sent me a bunch of stuff to put in and that really just changed the, the whole outcome of this room. So I've pulled some of the traps off and, you know, we do a lot of post-production here on the show. So I don't know if you can hear the room a little more than normal, but I can hear it and it's, uh, it's driving me a little nuts. Now, here's the interesting thing to me, and you might find this uh, completely boring. Some of you are going to be in shock, and, I, and you'll have to excuse the pun because I'm about to talk about something electrical. So, excuse the pun. Being that I just don't have all that much stuff in this room, and never have really, I've run the whole studio, brace yourselves, I've run the whole studio here off of a single 15 amp circuit or, or plug. One plug. Now, that doesn't include the lights. There's other plugs for the lights, but... There's only one plug in here that is suitable, even remotely suitable for this. And it's totally sufficed over the years, right? You got some computers, you got a, an interface, you know, I'm mostly mixing in the box with the exception of some things, but yeah, for the most part, it's just not that much of a power draw. That's worked out well. And I have some conditioners that clean that power a little bit. It's worked. So I've decided that I'm going to get some extra plugs put in, some isolated ground plugs, and really kind of beef the room up a little bit in that department so that we can get a little cleaner power and we can have some plugs in the right place and not everything's gonna be operating off of one 15 amp circuit. So 
putting in a 20 amp circuit. I think that'll do it. And uh, we'll run all the lights off the household. And then the circuit for the studio will be completely independent from the house. Except I think for the neutral, I think. Not 100% sure. See, I'm not an electrician. That's in itself not very interesting to me. But what I do find interesting and a huge pain in the ass is that finding an electrician at this point in time, as COVID is starting to let up, there is so much pent up demand for upgrades and new construction and anything that would need an electrician that everybody I talked to was either unresponsive, meaning I'd leave them messages, I'd text them, no response. And some just flat out said, I'm not available. You know, I'm not available for another two months or I'm working on a big project. I could see you at the end of the summer and uh, that's just not gonna work in my timeline. So I finally got a referral for somebody and that guy's busy, but his assistant can come over and get it all started. And then the main guy can then show up and check it all out and sign off on it. So it's kind of a different way to do it, but you know, that's how we're gonna do it. Just, you gotta do the best you can with uh, the circumstances. Now I could wait. I really could wait, but you know something, I don't know about you, but when I do this kind of a thing, I have the momentum on my side. It's like a wave that I have to ride, right? And I just can't let the wave pass me by. I gotta catch the wave, I gotta catch the momentum, I gotta finish the project and follow through. That's the state of where it's all at. As I may have mentioned, I'm just cleaning up and consolidating. You know, I said earlier, I'm selling gear and going through old hard drives, consolidating that down into my Synology NAS, which I had, I think I had a bit of a rant about at one point, which is a brilliant box. Yeah, then I'm just wiping all those old hard drives with, uh, you know, the whole Department of Defense level three kind of, you know, wiping strategy so that when I get rid of those drives, if some clever little person wants to, you know, think, oh, I, let's see what I can recover off this drive. They won't recover anything. That's it. That's the state of it. Once we get past this state, then we start to uh, change the furniture around a little bit, move some stuff out of here and start to uh, dial it in. And I'll post some pictures on social media as that transition really is taking place. Until then, onward I go towards the world of Dolby Atmos. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Cynthia Daniels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Cynthia, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Very nice to be here on Working Class Audio. I was digging around for engineers to bring on the show, and I came across your website somehow, and I just started to read through everything and was like, oh yeah, she's got to be on. Absolutely. Oh, well, that's great. I'm glad that the uh, shameless self-promoting website did its job. I want to dig in the beginning a little bit and kind of find out how this all came about. Where did you grow up originally? Well, I came of age, uh, musical age, I suppose, in Stamford, Connecticut. That would be high school when my career directions were starting to form and my love of music and electronics became incredibly clear. And who was it that inspired that? I have to say that some credit may go to my boyfriend at the time, Matthew Earl Jones, brother of James Earl Jones, who happened to have been an amazing guitarist, had a great Les Paul, was interested in me, and I was interested definitely in that little mixing board that was uh, across the room when they were playing. (laughs) (laughs) I was interested in him for a while, too. And I really wanted to have some sort of part in the process. And the part that most girls were playing was to sit on the couch during rehearsals or stand around while the guys played and then just be the chick. Mm -hmm. And I found myself immediately, you know, I was really into stereo equipment. And I have to say that... My stepfather at the time was a manufacturer's rep for audio of consumer and pro audio. So for Christmas, we always got great records. And, you know, and I had quad when no one even knew what it was because they made these silly quad amps thinking that would be the next wave of consumer audio. And I always had the greatest hi-fi, which is what we called it back then. I think if you ask a young person what hi-fi means. Unless they're an engineer where they may be talking about, you know, monitors in their studio being a little too hi-fi. And I don't even think young people, this is the longest answer (laughs) to a simple question, but it's not a simple answer. There was kind of a confluence of influences. So I always had audio equipment around the house and we had these giant speakers, much to my mother's horror in the living room. And of course, to me, there was nothing more beautiful than, I think at the time it was stainless steel. We go back and forth between stainless steel and blackface because we just really don't have a whole lot of other colors (laughs) in audio. (laughs) (laughs) So I was surrounded by music, amplifiers, pieces of amplifiers, uh, workshop capacitors and all sorts of things. I was just sort of endlessly fascinated with it. And then I had this boyfriend who was going to teach me guitar. In fact, pretty much every person I've been involved with has been a musician. And they always taught me guitar. But I knew when I was 16 and I was hanging out watching Matt Jones and his band play high schools (laughs) and probably bars where none of us were really allowed, that I did not want to be the chick on the couch and that I wanted to have a part in this. uh, Well, at the time, Joni Mitchell had come out with an album Court and Spark, stoking the star maker machinery behind the popular song. And honestly, I wasn't thinking about going into A&R. I was thinking about what job can I do? Because no matter how great I get to play this guitar, 
I don't think I'm going to be that great. And even if I am, I don't think I'm going to really make a great living. And I have no idea how I had the pressions to uh, know that. But I did. And so I picked up a Yes album because I was listening to Yes, a lot of prog rock, etc., among other things, Deep Purple, oh, all kinds of things. <laughs> and I found a job, recording engineer. Eddie Offord looked like a perfect fit. And that I told my parents I wanted to do. What did your parents say? How did they react to this? All right, well, finish high school and we'll find a college that will help you do this. And there were none <laughs> because it was 1974. And they didn't have accredited matriculating programs for recording engineering. And so uh, I went into radio and communications and then film and broadcasting at Boston University. And in the summer times, I went to the Institute of Audio Research with the infamous Al Grundy. New Yorkers know who he is, an audio engineering society <laughs> staple. And that was the school you'd go to. That was the only school in New York. And it was a, a program, a certificate program, a trade school, if you will. Mm -hmm. So my parents were supportive. I went back to Boston University for my junior year and decided that I was a live sound person and got a job at Paul's Mall and the Jazz Workshop, two of the biggest clubs in Boston, doing sound because I had a lot of chutzpah, if not <laughs> cajones, for a girl. How were you received by a very male-dominated audio circle at that time? I'm going to say that I was well-received, <laughs> but I'm not sure it was for my audio acumen. Mm. A, I didn't have much, and, you know, thus began the interaction and the intersection of negotiating being a woman in a male-dominated business and having part of that working for you doors opening and realizing that some of the doors were bedroom doors and some of them were studio doors. <laughs> and so there was some pushback when I did not want to walk through the bedroom door to answer the question that's obviously on the table. I had to pay my dues just like everybody else. One thing I had with that extra confidence, <laughs> I had no idea where it came from really, was that I put myself in every situation I could possibly put myself in, in audio. And it was doing punk rock, you know, that was very big in Boston. So I would do live sound for punk rock bands, you know, I was, it, it didn't matter, I was, I was in. And so I did every job associated with the audio that you could possibly do. And when I graduated from college, instead of asking for a car, I asked for a PA system. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, happened to have a stepfather who worked in the business and was obliged that, although it wasn't quite the competitive PA system that I would need, nor did I have a van or an ability to carry that thing around. So that was kind of a downside of having a PA system and <laughs> being a, a single person with no wheels. <laughs> but I had the PA. That's a, that's a little cart before the horse, isn't it? You know, it is. And no one did mention that to me <laughs> at all. But, you know, I, I use it. I would I use it for various things a few times. And I also would record people's demos, which at that time were going four track. Tiek. <laughs> Tiek thirty two twenty-four possibly, but I may be confusing it with the later Sony thirty-three forty-eight. I think it was a thirty-two twenty-four and it was essentially um four track. And so everybody's gotta pay their dues. Yeah. Everybody's got their path, whether it's difficult or not. Well, you know, I wouldn't want to be getting into the audio business in 2021, not for a million bucks, yeah. because it is completely glutted, changed. The training has changed, learning, you know, technology moves on. But and that's another story, isn't it? We should address that later. That's, that's okay. a great topic to discuss. Did you have uh, siblings? Yeah, I have I have two. I have two sisters. And I'm curious what their reaction to your career path was. <laughs> I have no idea. I <laughs> I don't think I really knew what anybody thought, nor did I care. I I 
I mean, I cared what the people in my business thought. Yeah. I was really, really gung-ho and really just like single-pointedly going for what I wanted. And it's never a straight path. And, you know, I did get some help, but I don't, I don't recall after I went to college at 17, I was really, really independent. And sounds like you were pretty independent before that. Yeah, I was actually much to my parents' horror. But um, <laughs> I think that there may be some kind of a template for the engineering type. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we are the only people in the room who do what we do besides our, our assistants, of course. And so there's a aspect of control, of course. Mm-hmm. That's why they call it the control room. <laughs> there's an aspect of hyper-responsibility. You know, I think that we share. There's an aspect of multi-level thinking that engineers also share, where you, you've got to keep track of a whole lot of things at, at one time, never mind that all the parts of a song, but all the parts of your gear in relation to the parts of a song. And I, I mean both vertically and horizontally. And if you need any explanation, then I can, <laughs> you know, I can explain that. But, you know, uh, tracks, uh, arrangements, everything resides in some sort of auditory plane. So did you also have musical education? Besides my boyfriend's teaching me how to play guitar? No, I did not. And I got schooled really quickly in um, music. I learned about music and the form of music by being an engineer, by being Mm. an assistant at first. Now, I studied at A&R Recording. That was a boot camp. That was a very big studio started by Phil Ramon, a producer of Great Note. So when I say boot camp, it's because we were trained. It was rough. You really could do no right and until you learned, you know. <laughs> right. and, and it wasn't for the week. And they weeded the people out. That's how you weed people out. There was a boot camp quality to it. And you had to be dedicated. And most engineers will probably tell you that by a certain point in their career, when people come to them and ask, what do I do to get into this business? It's like, well, first, let me tell you, if there's anything else that you think you can do and enjoy, go do it. Because it is a endless dedication that you really need to be prepared for. I was just talking to Stu White, who was here when he was just starting to work with Beyonce. And now, and they've been working together for 10 years now because she comes to the studio. And he said the same thing. You know, we were just sort of like at the same time. If there's anything else you think you can do, you should go do that. So I learned about music because I was doing jingles and assisting on jingle dates, you know, commercials. And, and uh, you know, you had uh, one hour to get drum sounds and you had, you know, you better get in there and set up the s- studio and, and, and not have any problems because they had one hour to get the rhythm section together, they had one hour to get the horn section reset up and, and another hour for the strings, another hour for vocals, and then there was a mix, you know, and that went on in four studios all day long. And then at night, there were film dates and record dates. Like the uh, first day I, ended, I was at A&R, they were working on Gaucho, the uh, Steely Dan record. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I just walked right into the end of the golden age of recording in 1980. And there were charts. You had to know where you were in the chart in the song, on the jingle, 60 seconds, because you had to punch in. It's the assistant's job to punch in. Now everybody, we had tape machines, and you could not make a mistake. And you better know where the bridge is, fast. And, you you know, so my musical education came from learning the form of the song by the seat of my pants, because that was completely necessary in order to do my job. And then I was able to listen and listen to instruments I'd never heard before. I wasn't a classical music lover, and so I didn't know about full orchestras and full string sections. I was a serious rock and roller. The first time I heard a string section play, when I walked into A1 and there were 40 strings playing, I I almost fell over with Hmm. love of the sound that I had never heard before. I had never been that close to it, that vibration, that beautiful harmony. So that's That's where I began my true musical education. If you had to sum up how they weeded people out, besides, you know, saying, hey, if there's anything else you think you can do, what are the other ways you saw people be weeded out 
or why do you think people were weeded out? Were they ill-prepared for what the realities of being in a studio were? Well, I think that getting weeded out is going to happen over either a short or long period of time, depending on how badly you want this. So not everybody wanted to be weeded out, for instance. In the 80s, there were a lot of drugs and alcohol, more so than now, I think. (laughs) I don't actually know, but it, it doesn't appear to be as insane as it was. So if you couldn't handle your job because of that, you're out. If you if you couldn't move quickly enough and set up the room and be on top of what you, your game when you got your shot, you were out. Mm. You didn't get a whole lot of extra chances. This was more of an A and R thing. This was a you know power station A and R. Later on, of course, Ed Rack left A and R and started Clinton. Right track. These are the places where. You know, when I went as an engineer, after I I became pretty quickly an engineer in my own right, after getting trained, all the assistants were trained the same way. You worked whatever hours you were supposed to work. You know, some some people couldn't handle the hours. Some people thought they should have a social life. (laughs) Other people understood that nobody who was very successful ever worked nine to five. Now, maybe somebody could tell, you know, prove me wrong. But I think in most businesses, <laughs> from the ones I've seen, and I've seen a lot of different types of businesses, but I'm pretty much a one-trick pony. You know, I live in my business, but I know in the corporate world, I know what lawyers go through. Those 80-hour, 100-hour work weeks are no lie. That's kind of a boot camp. And then there's the longevity of a career. How do you keep it going? Will you get weeded out because, not because of any lack of talent, but because perhaps the opportunity, the stars weren't lining up enough times for you to meet the right people at the right time. That's just very real in any artistic business. I can't count the amount of incredible artists I've had the honor of passing through my fingers and ears and, and not a damn thing happened with their careers. You know, not everybody can get all the gold and famous and all of the rest of that stuff and hard work and talent are absolutely required. And, you know, as far as musical trends, <laughs> I'm not even sure about the talent part. <laughs> but I know that luck and right place, right time, opportunity, meeting, readiness comes into play. And so a lot of the people that I trained with fell by the wayside in terms of this was something they really wanted to do, and they just didn't have the opportunities appear. They just went into other businesses in order to support a family and move on with their lives. I know this is going to be kind of a a very broad question stretching over a long period of time, but if you could identify some of the key points of the things you learned in the times that you were working at other studios prior to creating the studio that you have now, what would they be, whether they be business or personal or any of that? Yeah, besides the dedication that I, I've mentioned, something Phil pointed out that you know, as a young person, you don't totally understand a lot of the things you're taught until you get older and use and see that they, it's just the problem of youth being wasted on the young. <laughs> they try to save you from yourself, try to save you from your mistakes. I try to save my assistants from their mistakes. And I just said, you know, I can. I can tell you what's going to happen. And the best you can do is probably don't let it happen twice. So one of the things Phil passed on from the very beginning and mentions in his book, you know, the artist is the most important thing because essentially what am I doing here if they're not here? And if they're not happy and how you make an artist happy is is a matter of, um, you know, a whole lot of experience. And how you inspire an artist is a whole other story, which is kind of like my main goal. And I even have a piece of tape that says inspire on the other side of one of my racks facing me so that I can remember if I become annoyed or, you know, we've done the 50th take of that line, et cetera, depending on who's producing, which is usually me, that that probably wouldn't happen. If you can't get that line in 50 takes, we're probably going to come back to it or change the line. But that's another story. (laughs) It all depends on who you're working with. So the artist is 
the reason that you have a job and working towards not just satisfying the artist because they don't always know what will satisfy them. And some of them are unsatisfiable. Many people are unsatisfiable. But just to make the vibe and the uh, environment as safe and creative is spend time with that headphone mix. That's like one of the most important things that people forget. Every engineer should be on the other side of the glass having their assistant or whomever run a session. Just try it. Just get on the other side of the glass, put those headphones on, and see what it sounds like when there's five people in the room all talking at once and someone gets on that noisy talk back or there's people talking and you don't tell the artist at all what's going on and they're standing out there like, excuse me, hello, I'm here. These kinds of things, you know, people just completely forget that the flow has to be really centered on the person or the project that you're working on. And that's at the pinnacle because people get involved in their own thought process and getting that effect while everyone's sitting around. You got to be really kind of conscious of how long you're going to spend on that effect. Uh, well, <laughs> just the ju- getting that reverb just right while someone's trying to get a take. And those are just some examples of how you put the artist first, of course, and in order to inspire them. So the, there's that getting their sonic environment is very important as well as the physical environment. And the things I learned in other studios, well, I learned that I was trained the right way. And I learned that that the assistants that I was working with, the best ones, had a similar training. And, you know, I learned that the vibe is is very important and, you know, how the room sounds. To know what you're hearing is really important. References or just trusting what's going on in the monitors especially if you're giving mixes or rough mixes. And rough mixes are really important because that's the only thing they take away with them until your next session. Mm-hmm. So don't don't just run them off, leave the vocal hanging out there. Doesn't mean spend an hour. They don't want to pay for that. Learn how to make a really good rough mix quickly because really that's what the artist is going to take home and that's what they're going to be kind of judging their experience by on a certain level. <laughs> that equipment is important, but... Adopting constantly changing techniques for the sake of adopting change is something that should be, you know, you do in your on your time. And that if things are working, certain things are working, you don't have to constantly change and constantly invest, but you have to keep up with technology. So in other words, if I have some really beautiful pieces of analog gear and I'm, I'm salivating over, you know, the next 90 plugins. Do what works and spend as much time as you can learning the latest techniques from other engineers. We have so much available to us out there. Talk to other engineers. Listen to what other people's experiences are. The greatest thing about the AES is that all these people who are the only people who do what they do all day long get together (laughs) and we get to like share stories and say, oh my God, right? You know, and you're just not so alone all of a sudden. And part of uh, that, it is it really important to know that you're that you're on the right track? So stay in touch with the world. Don't get involved in your own little space and your own little artistic thing. And that's what I do, and nothing else matters. And on the other side, using a thousand different plugins because they're the latest and the greatest may not be the way to get a consistent sound and to hone your craft. It may just be a way to uh, put a whole bunch of other plugins and sounds. So there's a time for all of that. That that was something I learned in the you know in my digital years, to balance that sort of uh, urge to try everything just because it's there. Because there's a huge candy store out there, and it's like, what's going on here? Are you trying to make the best sounding record that you can? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you trying to have the greatest ADR experience that you can? Yes. And that you know I do a lot of ADR, and that is all about the actor. And the director, and oh, you got boy. Zoom going now. You know, you know, you've got five people directing, and running one of those sessions is a skill. You have to get your timing right, and that's also part of being an engineer: getting your timing, knowing when to talk, knowing when to offer, knowing when not to, reading the situation. That's how you keep clients. 
Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to dial back to this period of, of your life prior to your own studio and the lessons you learned financially, did you learn any, any great lessons as well? I learned everything about business. Okay. Know your worth. Make sure you get paid. Become intuitive about who is going to actually pay you and who is not. And when you're just learning and you're giving it away, that's fine. Go ahead. That's how you pay your dues. But be careful because if you are actually providing a service for someone and you feel that you have enough experience either with that artist or in what you're doing that you should be getting paid, then you need to ask for money because a lot of people don't and they don't even know how to ask for money. You must be very impassive and impersonal when it comes to money. Don't be mean. Just at the end of the session say, shall we do business now? And, and even better, before the session, but that shows a lack of faith. So you have to weigh those things. Okay, so that's one thing. I mean, there's so many different people you deal with, interestingly, in my 20s, due to a whole confluence of vectors that occurred. I ended up managing a studio in New York City and basically booking myself on every single session, which is how I ended up working 16 hours a day and engineering every single thing I could. And, you know, that's what you need to do. That's really what you need to do. And all these different types of projects. And, and that's essentially how I met the clients who would take me through the next 25 years in various parts of my career. So you should probably understand how every part of the business works. Because I don't think people understand how to run a studio necessarily. You know, how it's done, how to book a session, what to be prepared for, the right questions to ask, who are the right people to talk to. Because in the past, there was the booking manager, there was the studio manager, there was the engineer and the producer, and there were everybody had a different job. And now basically, guess who does it all? Most studio owners or whatever they want to call a studio, which is a whole other thing. Personally, I'd like to see the level of, of recording studios kept to an incredibly high standard, the standard being how I was trained and all of the things we've been talking about. And, you know, that's just going to change. There's too much available to everybody. You know, is there a lessening of quality? Are there plugins where basically people just say, make me sound like this, and then they think they can, and there's all sorts of gnarly audio information getting pumped out into <laughs> people's ears on a 24-7 basis, including distortion all over the place, which is making people go deaf, and that's, a, that's an actual scientific fact, you know, that even low-level square waves can pretty much affect your hearing in an incredibly violent way. I can't change movement of time. So there are still people who know what good sound is. 
I'm going to throw something at you, and I don't know if you're going to identify with it or not, but have you ever watched the show Downton Abbey? Well, of course. Okay. Well, of course, naturally. Naturally. Okay, well, I'm a woman of a certain age. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, aren't I, you? No. <laughs> well, you know, my wife has watched the series probably four times in a row, and I am now just coming around to watching it with her okay. on, the, on the fifth round. And um, <laughs> Boy, and, she does love that show. Oh, she does. She's She's addicted. And what I find interesting in what you're saying, you've mentioned a few things about basically things are changing. And what it reminds me of in that show is I'm at a point in the show where they're discussing how the lords and the ladies, their great estates are falling into disrepair. They just can't bring in the money anymore to have a full staff. And you're reduced down to the butler who is doing the job of five or six people. Well, at least we need one footman, whatever the heck that is. I know. what what I, I'm learning all these new terms. I don't know what a footman show. is. I never have figured out. It's, it's, it's somebody who helps people in and out of their carriages, is, is, and, and I don't know. You know. I, I was thinking they were all footmen. They were waiting on everybody hand and foot. And, Indeed. But I find there's a lot of similarities, and it just makes me think, is this happen in other industries, and it's just slowly happening to ours over time? Studios are closing. The economics of it are changing. We don't have maintenance people as yeah, much. Yeah, the as, staff, right? The staff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm really hoping that that upstairs downstairs quality isn't quite as profound in the audio business. And we did eat people's scraps. It's true. <laughs> it's totally true. I I couldn't afford to buy my food and pay rent. I. They had these amazing delicatessens back during the at great advertising age, and people would order sandwiches two feet high from Carnegie Deli, and guess who got to eat the rest of them, you know, when they left half of them over. So I'm sorry to say, but yeah, actually assistants and, and production people were kind of scavengers. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we were really downstairs. Okay, I mean, you know, you bring this up, and I'm thinking, oh, there's a form of royalty, sure. And there still is. I bend over backwards for certain clients. For most of them, I have a lot of celebrity clients. They're used to the whole point of being a high-end studio for high-end clients is that you treat them in the manner that they are used to. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. That keeps them coming back. And and why shouldn't I? They pay a nice rate for that. Okay? Yeah. And it's ever thus. So, no, we... We don't have the staff. We don't have the support we used to have. You have to get on the phone with Avid and pay $75 to figure out what the heck is wrong with you or go trolling online and get God knows who on Gear Sluts and all the other forum pages and have to like look at what year it was for your fix. And it actually mm -hmm. really seems kind of random. Yeah, kind of haphazard in terms of support staff. And then again, there's the digital world is very much uh, maintenance-free. You know, you learn how to do your updates and um, learn your gear. <laughs> and a lot, it's, you know, a lot of it's pretty much, uh, you know, no more lining tape machines, no more modules to bang on. And, uh, you know, if you have analog gear, well, you better learn how to take care of it. There's a few people out there, but everything gets sent out. Yes, it's true. There's no longer an in-house staff. Yeah. <laughs> the Downton Abbey Syndrome. And and there's a lot of people who never got trained. And I know some of the instructors at these schools, and they're damn good, the schools in New York for sure, because I know the instructors, and I know what they're teaching their students, and I hope they learn, because it's really hard to know what you don't know. It's hard to take in what's going to happen. Yeah. And I know that they're, they're training them to a certain standard because they have been in the trenches. And they're teaching. Yeah, there's no more staff, and we hope that people are going to keep up some level of standard because that's part of staff. But I do hear a lot of stories about clients who I think they come back because things aren't breaking in front of their eyes and things are working and there's not somebody sitting at a computer saying, wait, wait, wait. It doesn't mean computers don't fold in the middle right. of a session on occasion. But we try to keep the psychedelic spinning wheel of doom off of our <laughs> Macs, right? Nobody wants to see that. 
And you better know how to retrieve your files and better back up all the time, all those things. And people probably all make the same old, same mistakes until they learn. This studio that you have now, it's located in the Hamptons. Is that correct? It's located in East Hampton. And I ended up, instead of bumping out five feet for a room in my house, which was how it started, uh-huh. it turned into you know adding 2,500 square feet onto my house, uh, 650 of which is the studio. Wow. How long ago did you start this? When did, when did you get the house? And Well, I took an existing house and just built onto it and replaced everything in it and on it. And I should have just taken it down. And uh, most of it was taken down, but I had I insisted on keeping a particular roof line. So it was a very small house, about 1,200 square feet. And then we just added bedrooms. And, you know, I have two suites now and, and uh, had John Stork come in and design the uh, full separate architect and had him design the recording studio. So he came out here. He he has done work out here for the Ross School. He built a beautiful, amazing auditorium. And I'd worked in his rooms in the city and uh, had a lot of regard for him. And so I did it the right way because I had considered sort of just you know, making a nice studio, but not something that was going to cost quite as much. And I'm just so glad I, I did. I'm so glad I, I did what I'd spent 40 years waiting to do. And I had a clientele out here. It was getting difficult to tell particularly celebrities or anybody else that I'm doing a work in kind of like a C space, you know, because there's foam on the walls and they're walking through my kitchen, you know, or past my kitchen and people want to see a studio. They just want the studio. They don't want to see your house, <laughs> no matter how many people have their studios in their homes. So right. this is a, attached to my home, and but then I get to come down here, you know, walk down a few stairs and come into an incredibly isolated, window-laden, incredibly well-soundproof, acoustically perfect space and do my work and wait for my clients to pull up and uh, don't go anywhere near the house. Oh, that's nice. And you, I mean, because you're dealing with some... Looking at the website, I mean, you're dealing with actors, you're dealing with uh, musicians, a lot of high-profile people. Mm -hmm. And the idea of having any of those people traipsing through your house. No, they don't want to see that. They, they get yeah. freaked out. And they want, they want the high-end experience. Yes, they do. They want LA, New York, East Hampton. Works for me. Yeah. And I didn't really know that there were that many out here. And I had already been doing ADR and some sessions for some of these people for another studio that was out here that, that's no longer here. It was a small studio, and it really had a tiny little room, and it wasn't for music at all. So I'm feeling a need, and there really hasn't been any, there hasn't been any true competition in terms of the level of expertise from my career in New York and the design of the place. And, you know, I, I don't say that without humility. I'm, I didn't invent a beautiful recording studio architecture. I, perhaps John Stork did. He can get a lot of that credit. I just know what environment I liked to be in. And I also knew I was never going to be in a windowless room again. Yeah. Were there a lot of uh, challenges in the in the construction of it with, you know, I, I've never been to the Hamptons. I don't know. Like, is it challenging to deal with the, the city, the town, the, mm -hmm. the building permits, et cetera? Uh, not, not a studio because a studio is completely legal. So there was absolutely no problem at all with the studio. And with the uh, house, of course, there's uh, typical building permits, clearing issues, pyramid laws with regard to height, none of which affected the studio. No, the biggest challenge in building the studio was timing because I needed to get this up and running for the summer season. And we opened in the beginning of August. And I had from Memorial Day to kind of suffer through with a rented home and whatever. <laughs> Gratefully, it wasn't a particularly busy summer. And, you know, I was doing music projects and ADR here before it was even completely built, meaning there was still some fabric to go on some of the walls, et cetera. So we built the studio before we finished the house. I just said, get that, that part done. <laughs> and this is a slab on grade, so there's concrete floors and there are ISO booth is separated from the other, of course, and the walls are concrete. And, you know, we started building in the winter, which was much later than I wanted to. And it was particularly cold winter, and concrete is poured into what are known as forms, which are pieces of wood that are sort of vice-gripped against them until they form. Yeah. They froze to the cement. And so we had to wait for a thaw to get the forms off the cement, you know, just... <sighs> 
stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's just building stuff. That's just, that'll happen all the time. How long has this particular studio been in existence? Well, since 2011. Oh, wow. Hey, it's our 10-year anniversary. Yeah. I should have a party, a post-COVID party. COVID wasn't much of a problem, except that we were so busy. I, I had been paying my assistant to stay away because I didn't want anyone else in the room. And I finally had to have him come back and just get tested a lot because I have a beautiful room that opens to the outside because I had that for a musical equipment to be rolled through drums and things like that. And so I have these two three-quarter inch, nine-foot sliding glass doors just going between that room and my room, the control room. Mm. And our air conditioning isn't even shared. I mean, it goes through a filter before it comes in here and I would turn off the AC and the heat. I was pretty paranoid. So our, our protocols were incredibly stringent and people came in from the outside and I used that Vornado fan and I sanitized the hell out of the place. And for a while I had one session a day. I did not want anyone coming in before 24 hours had passed. I mean, it was a, it's still out there, but we just happen to have a really, really good rate of vaccination here. So I imagine that you book out pretty far in advance because- No. No? No. I don't know why, huh. but it's never been that way. Huh. And I do not lock out my studio if I can possibly help it because I have so much business in the summer. And now that since COVID, this, the population has tripled out here. You can't get a house. You can't even buy a house. You know, that's kind of horrifying because it's like summer season all the time. But I don't know why, but if someone wants to book out six weeks, I just can't do that. So you just take it as it comes. I take it as it comes in, in the summer or just now. And as I said, it's it's been pretty busy. <laughs> so it's not like we've had a summer season. It's just sort of all year long, but it does. it has been getting busier. You know, I'll take two or three booking calls a day and just kind of play Chinese checkers with the schedule to fit everybody in. But most people need a couple of weeks. I ask people, how far out should we book? I said, the sooner you get in, the better. Hmm. The sooner you confirm, the better. But I, I really am not, I don't really like a lockout. There are exceptions, for sure, where no one else is allowed in the studio at any other time. Mm, I did have Jay-Z here for three weeks last year, and I don't think I had other people in the studio. Uh, they. They came and went as they pleased. And is it a residential setup? So if somebody wants to stay there, they can? Before COVID, yeah. I, okay. I have a, it's not my preference. And people like Jay-Z have their own houses that are much nicer than mine. Uh -huh. <laughs> Pretty close by. And there's a lot of security details that hang out in the driveway for various people who come and go. Uh -huh. A lot of people are on vacation out here. They are actually trying to take a break. Uh -huh. And so they want to get in and get out and they don't want to live in a studio for six weeks. You know, in the wintertime, I would lock out and have, but not in the summer. Hmm. I can't just tell everybody I'm not available. There's too many movies being made, especially now. So as far as the, the breakdown of, of your work and percentages, whether it's working on films or music, what is the dominant thing? It depends on the time of year. An awful lot of music goes on in the fall, winter, and spring, and not as much in the summer, although, you know, we have plenty of music in the summer. I just, there's so much film in the summer that I'm going to say that it leans uh, 60%, 70% to film in the summertime, depending on, on the year. Every year is a new surprise. I never know who's going to be out here. Chris <laughs> Martin, B, Jennifer Lopez, all kinds of folks. And then there are people who, you know, have a home here all year long. So I, I tend to see them throughout the year. Most of those are, are film, are actors. And you're, at this point, I'm assuming after being there for 10 years, a lot of people are well aware that you're there. So they probably yep. just think, oh, we're going to be in the Hamptons. Let's just stop by Cynthia's. I'd like to say that. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that I'm here. How many new actors come in and say, I never knew you were here, and I've been going into New York and spending six hours on a jitney to do a round trip. And I don't know why. Sure, I have a, a lot of repeat business, and a lot of film studios pass my name on to other film studios. I do a lot of work with Los Angeles and Toronto and wherever, France, Australia. So the film studios know about me. But every time a new producer or a new, you know, somebody new comes up, I'll get a call out of the blue. Or someone will show up and say, I had no idea you were here. And 
No, I don't. I don't advertise. Where would I advertise on a billboard? I don't actually. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> yeah. In the local paper, it's I, it's not necessary. Yeah. Actually. It's and a word of mouth because thing for sure. I, yeah, I have 10 domain names. Anyone who wants to find a recording studio in the Hamptons will find me. I have faith about that. Do I sound like just like completely puffy and egotistical? I hope not. No. I don't want to at all. I'm just telling you like that's just how it's been. Am I happy about it? I'm thrilled. I'm being, I'm over the moon. Yeah. You know, it's insane. It's impossible. I'd love to have a studio in the Hamptons. I, I right. think you're in a great position. That's fantastic. I am. And what's so different is that Los Angeles is one big recording studio. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you can compete on the same level. I don't know why someone else hasn't come out here and some engineers had my experience. There are some mm -hmm. and decided they would set up a John Storick studio. I'm sort of glad they haven't. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, they can't buy a house now, so it's not a problem. <laughs> I'm not going to say people aren't. I don't get calls from rock stars saying, you know, can you help me set up my Mackie and my and a couple of mics? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you who it, who they are, but there's plenty of people who do recording in their home out here. I know that. that that's yeah. okay. Do what you need to do. We're just about out of time, so. I'm going to include in the show notes a link to your studio, which, by the way, audience, is Monk Music Studios. And I will put a link to the studio in the show notes, monkmusicstudios.com in there for everybody to check out. Cynthia, it's been great talking to you. I've, I've never talked to anybody who's got a studio in the Hamptons in almost seven years. Like I said. <laughs> yeah. Many have tried. No, there have been there have been some attempts out here of uh, video studios. There's strange. It's very strange. It's because it's so seasonal, which is changing a lot. But I know Alec Baldwin, who's a I've been working with him for 19, 20 years now. He's a wonderful, loyal client. And we've often talked about getting together and making a film studio. And there's a hundred miles between New York City and the Hamptons. And it's not enough to keep people who want to come and, and, and enjoy the ocean and, and the woods and what used to be the privacy out here. But it's not a lot of crews are going to come out here for a day. Yeah. I guess. I don't really have the answer, but I'm glad that I don't need to build a video studio. It's been great talking to you. And uh, like I say, I'll include a link to the studio in the show notes and any other links you happen to, to send me that, uh, whether they be social media or otherwise. Well, thank you so much for having me, Matt, and being such an amazing listener. I'll tell you, that one trick pony thing, you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me about my career, I definitely have a lot to say. You know? <laughs> well, I'm sure you've got a lot more to say, actually. I'm sure that there's a, I mean, there's so much detail that we glossed over entirely. And maybe at some point we can have you back for a round two and, and talk Goodness. about that. If you're interested, I'm game. Oh, yeah. It's been really fun. I appreciate your questions and, and your interest and your ongoing promotion, really, of information of this uh, beloved career that, that a lot of people have chosen to do or really, really want to do in the service of music. And that's really what I am here for, is to be in the service of the music in whatever form that takes through the equipment and skill. And I never want to forget that. Yeah. The bottom line is not really here to satisfy my dreams. It just They just happened to coincide that I could get to do exactly that. Well, it's been great having you and I really appreciate it. So uh, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. You have a great night and uh, enjoy your new little puppy. Well, thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. 
Cynthia Daniels here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. And of course, this is that part of the show where I always ask that one favor, and that is head on over to iTunes and uh, leave a positive review. You can leave five stars, or if you'd like to write something up, that's always appreciated. You know, a small memoir about your feelings for Working Class Audio, right? All right. Well, that's it for me today. Just want to thank the crew, and that includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.